You're listening to Design Talk, a podcast for conversations connecting design with theory, organizations, business, and impact. Hi, I'm Manali. Hi, I'm Kushagra. We're pleased to welcome Mark O'Connor. Mark is head of public sector at APB and has been involved in technology-centered transformation initiatives across his career. To start, could you give us a short sketch of your career today? Okay, so we'll go back a few years now. Uh, this is where I show my age. Uh, I started off in, well, I started off with university where I studied industrial relations and HR. I'd like to stress I've never worked in HR and industrial relations. It was, really didn't know what I wanted to do in university. From there, uh, I took my first job. I was working in Citibank. Um, didn't really want to work in the finance area, but decided I'd try another part of it. Uh, and I worked for a company called Corn Market, where I became a qualified financial advisor and realized I never wanted to work with other people's money ever again. Um, from there, I took a job in an organization called, this is really showing my age, Telecom Erin which became Aircom, which is now Air. Uh, and I started working off, and the first product I was selling was dial-up internet. All right, so this is, we're going back, and then it was we, this problem we were solving, we were selling the first, probably the first bunch of mobile phones that people would have had. So it's going back a few years from there. I contracted for a period with Nokia, uh, when everybody had Nokia mobile phones. This was before your iPhones and your Samsung phones. From there, I went to work for an organization called UPC, which you would know now as Virgin Media. Uh, I was managing their public sector area for eight years. Uh, that was, we were doing a lot of Cisco networking, a lot of connectivity between offices. And predominantly at the time, I was selling services to the Irish public sector. Uh, from there, I went to O2, uh, which is a brand that's probably not in, it's not in the market anymore here in Ireland. Uh, you'd know this tree, uh, the mobile phone network. And I was the head of public sector for O2 when we got bought by Tree. Uh, so I was there for eight years. I did eight years in, uh, in UPC as well. And from Tree, I decided I wanted to do something completely radically different. So I joined a company called UiPath. Uh, they would be involved in robotic process automation and AI. Uh, worked with them for nearly four years. And ABP were one of UiPath's biggest partners. Uh, I had done a lot of work with the team in ABP and decided I didn't want to just be in the software side of things. I wanted to be in the solution selling, the problem solving and took a job in ABP. So in a very quick synopsis, that's my career and how I've ended up uh, in the... But I suppose when I look back at how my career changed, it very much became very consultative selling. I was doing a lot of people management as well. And I'm in people management again, but also on the consultative side of things as well in, in my role in ABP. Can you tell us about ABP's mission? I suppose to keep it simple, we're here to solve problems with technology. When we engage with our clients, we're generally in the room because they have a problem. They don't bring in consultants unless there's an issue they want to solve. And the one thing you have to learn is when you go and deal with a client is you're there for a reason and you need to figure out what the problem is. 
because they know how their business runs better than you, but there's a reason you're here because they obviously have a problem when you're here to fix it. So what we do is we simplify it and we say our mission is to help our clients solve problems, make their jobs run better. We do a lot of in the robotic space, but we actually take the robots out of the human, right? let them do the regular day-to-day -day work and automate a lot of the tasks they don't want to do. And now we're getting more into the AI and machine learning space. Uh, but at the fundamentally, it all comes down to problem solving. So that is pretty much our mission. We're here to solve your problems. Thank you. Where does process automation fit within the technology consulting ecosystem? I suppose it's a relatively new technology, but it's also been around for a long time. People have, have been automating processes since day one. There's always been a smarter and better way to do something. It just takes a little bit of time to figure it out. And I suppose RPA and you know robotic process automation, or as we like to call it now, intelligent automation, sort of has become sort of a steadfast part of business for the last sort of five, six years. But it really came to the fore in COVID, where people weren't in offices and they needed tasks to be done and they mightn't have access to their offices, so you had to automate a lot of work. But what I would say is that pretty much the majority of businesses now would have a center of excellence for automation or have automation as core to what they do. It's And our, power, our job in ABP is, is to basically put the right structures in place. Uh, we, be, we believe in a self-sufficiency model. We believe that... Our job as consultants is to bring that expertise into the business and train up the people in those organizations to have the skills themselves. Or also what we do is we also run an organization called the School of Automation. So an organization may come to us and say, we have a skills deficit and we need people with these skills into our organization. And what we try to do as the School of Automation, we actually try to find people from an underprivileged background or a disability or people who might be from the neurodiverse background and might have, mightn't have had the opportunity to go to university. Uh, we find we do a lot of work in Scotland and a lot of parts of the UK and even here in Ireland where people just, it just didn't happen for them. But they're really, really good people. And if you put the right structuring and the right learning around them, that we can create a career opportunity for them into a predominantly we see a lot of the public sector organizations we would partner with so in ireland you'd see the likes of the hse uh, would take a lot of people through the school of automation program um, you have the department of education who take people through the program so we're not just there to as we say sell consultancy services we're there to create an environment where people are empowered that they feel as if they want to upskill themselves and they want to own this technology you've brought in. So we start them on the journey, but it's them owning their own journey is where we want to get with them. What values and mindset do you rely on in your role as a consultant? Um, it's a very agile mindset because you never know what's going to come at you next. Uh, I was just speaking to Alan beforehand. I, my calls yesterday were with the home office in the UK. Then it was the cabinet office. Then it was an NHS trust who wanted to use RPA to see more cancer patients. 
So you're 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 constantly having to move around, uh, and but you have to be very agile to to react to what's coming at you. But it all comes back to the problem minding, problem solving mindset, going into the discussions with the client of, well, I'm here for a reason. I'm here to solve your problem. But you need to be very flexible. You can't always go in and say, this is the framework I have and this is how I work. Because that mightn't work with the client you're with. You have to react to the people you're working with. You know, different personalities. Um, some people will be very rigid and they want it done a certain way. And then you have to adapt to the way they want to work with you. Other people are throwing things at you left, right, and center, and you've got to be very flexible to their requirements. So, But I always fundamentally have an agile framework where I know I need to get certain things done. I know I need to do it in a certain way for this all to make sure that we provide the solution correctly. And I also have to factor in that we need to do it in such a way that this is the horrible world we live in, I have to make a profit while I'm doing this. So you have to figure out as well, okay, how am I going to work with this person? How am I going to keep it? Because we, we like to call it the ABP framework, which is saying, well, this is how we fundamentally do things and this is how we do it right. Because the infrastructure we build and the environment we build, we know we have to leave a legacy with the client. So we know what works. Sometimes the client will look at you and say, I want to do it this way. And you're you're in the room going, I really, how do I tell him that he's going to make a real big mistake by doing it that way? So you've got to basically leverage on your experience and say, well, when we've worked with other clients who've done it that way, we've realized they've run into problems later on down the road. And here are the types of problems that they've run into. So if we keep it back to our core framework, but also having a very agile mindset of, okay, what's coming next? You know, you know I'm no expert in, in cancer treatments, but I know I can save those nurses a set amount of time if I automate the processes I'm working with them, take away the paperwork, take away the administrative side of things. So I'm, I've gone into it saying, I'm not an expert in cancer treatment, but I know I can save you time. And their problem was they don't have enough time to see the amount of patients they need to see in the day. So I know the problem statement is they need time. The one thing they can't buy is time. So how do we give them back that time? And if you give them back that time, that means they get to see more patients. They actually get to be, you know, I, w I was quite shocked when I started working with the, the nursing teams around the country and in the UK. And almost 50% of their day was administrative tasks. You think they're going to be spending time. And they, they say, I didn't sign up to be a nurse to spend 50% of my day moving information from one system to another to, a, to another system or retyping because uh, we, had a, we had a quite a funny incident where we had a young developer who came through the school and he was working with a hospital in Ireland. And the system he was working on and he was automating a task, he rang me and he said, Mark, there's a sign on the system the support contract is out of date since before I was born. You know, and he's like, I'm being asked to work on this. And I said, well, Connor, that's the way it is. There are these legacy systems you're going to have to work with. So, and he goes, yeah, it's really frustrating. And I say, imagine how frustrating it is for the nurses who have to work with that system every day. How can you take 
that problem away from them and get that data into the into the systems for them. But it's it, it always comes back to you're there because you, there's a problem to solve. You know, and I, I always if I can tell if you can walk away from anything you've heard from me today, if you're going into the consultative world, you're going in. You know, sometimes it has a bad name because people are trying to create is what they call billing billable hours. But we go in sort of a lot of what we do is fixed price, where we say we will solve this problem for you, and here's a guaranteed fixed price to solve this problem. But it's based around clearly understanding what the problem is. Um, thank you. On those lines, uh, what other things do you keep in mind when working with your clients? Um. I suppose you you have to adapt. First thing in, when in a working environment, you've got to adapt to the people who are opposite the table to you. You know, you've got to build a good working relationship with them. Um, you know, the other thing as well, you you really have to you know, you've got to bring it back to. I know we keep saying the problem solving, but and how do they work? How many different stakeholders? Are you are you going to be dealing with in the project to have a clear understanding of that? What I always find is, and especially when we're in the automation space, it's people who are doing the job who come with all the ideas of I want to automate this, I want to take this task away. Uh, but, and then you're looking around the room and you're saying, "Where's IT?" And they're like, "Oh, I didn't think about that." I said, "Well, the robot is like a digital worker." Okay, so we're going to build you a robot to take this task away. But the robot has to log on to the systems. So when you were creating, if, if a new person was starting in the organization, what would you do? Oh, well, we'd set them up with an email address. So we'd get them to access the systems. All right, and how would you do that? i make a request to IT. Okay, why aren't IT in the room? So the first thing what you're doing is when you're when you're dealing with the different people is is make sure all the right people are there. The biggest fault I see in projects is that you start the projects and you haven't understand understood all the different stakeholders who would be part of the project. Uh, you haven't mapped it out properly. Um, uh, you what we call is a production design document where you understand all the different steps in the in the process and then the other thing you have to figure out is well and this is where you need to to get all the right people in into into room is well, what are the variants okay so we always call it there's a happy path right and where it starts here and it finishes there and then you ask them how many times does the happy path actually happen and then you suddenly realize, well, it's only 80% of the time. But that 20% of the time takes up a huge amount of time when they realize that, well, so we have to say to, okay, if the robot can do the happy path, who's its supervisor? Who are we going to send the exceptions to? Why are they exceptions? You know, so you're fundamentally, and then what you find is, well, okay, in that case, that goes to Mary. And then you look around the room, is Mary here? And they're like, no. Okay, can we get Mary in? Because we need to understand how we're going to map it out. So what I'd say is when you're dealing with different people, always make sure you're dealing with the right people. 
and all the people you're going to have to deal with in a project. And that's part of the discovery phase. So when I take, say, a framework of, of where I'm dealing with the client, I do a lot of prep work before any project starts to make sure we've discovered all of the different tasks that need. The biggest mistake you'll make is someone comes to you and you're really excited and you really want to start this project and you just jump straight in. And then you're halfway through it and you realize, oh, we didn't map this out properly. We didn't do the research on it. We didn't understand the variance. We didn't understand the infrastructure. We didn't engage with IT. Oh God, are we building this in a cloud environment or are we building it on-premise? Are, are we going to allow the robot to make any decisions here? Oh, if we're going to let the robot make a decision, oh God, then we have to go and look at the regulatory environment of the robot actually making a decision here. And suddenly you're like, God, I'm back to the start. So the research of your projects is key. And sometimes you sometimes there'll be challenges, challenges set to you in the room. And the biggest mistake I, I see of younger people, and I made that mistake when, when I started out myself, is to think you know all the answers. If you're not sure, the best answer you can give is, I'll check that out and I'll come back to you on that. Because there's nothing more embarrassing of having to roll back when you were so certain you gave that answer. But in the back of your mind, there's a little doubt. If there's that little doubt, they'll thank you much more for you to say, I'm going to check that out. I'm going to come back to you. And then when you come back and you've done the research, you know the answer, you're much more confident. They're much more confident. You know, so and the nugget I'll give to anyone is, if you're unsure, the answer is always, I'll check that out and I'll come back to you on that. The impact of automation is often cast as a negative, like considering jobs lost. How valid are the fears and criticisms? How do you feel? How do you deal with it as a service provider? Okay, um, here's the the harsh truths of life, right? Um, I look around the room, right? Does anybody rent out a VHS video anymore? DVDs, all right. Technology is always changing people's jobs. It always has and it always will. And I heard a, a statement, at a pre, I was at a presentation the other day and someone came up and said, someone came up and said, AI is going to take your job. And the person said, no, the person who understands AI is going to take your job. You know. So that's the mindset you have to go into work these days with to say, if I understand technology and I move with it, there's a job, there's always a job for you. But if you're in a job and you don't have the mindset that I'm going to move with it, there's a good chance that people have worked in jobs that they've been automated away. They're not needed anymore. Netflix got rid of all of the blockbuster video, got rid of all of these different companies. Spotify have got rid of HMV and all of these places. So if you thought you were going to work in a record shop for the rest of your life, there's a good chance you're not working there anymore. All right. Automation, if it's used correctly, is actually a good thing because it takes away the tasks that quite manual that people don't want to do. I used the example, I was working on a project with the Irish Passport Office. 
And it used to take 17 days to renew your passport. Okay. And we sat down with the team in the passport office and we were working. I was working in UiPath and we were working with a, an organization called Bearing Point or a consultancy firm in the technology space. And the fundamental problem was the people in the passport office were extremely stressed because people were coming in and shouting and screaming at them because they were waiting so long because people were checking their passport a couple of days before they go away, suddenly panicking and saying, my passport's out of date, the holiday I've spent thousands on, I'm not going to be able to go. And the people in the passport office were saying, well, I'm sorry, it takes, we have quite a big backlog of people renewing their passports. It wasn't helped by Brexit. So you had hundreds of thousands of people in the UK when Brexit happened who suddenly realized they had Irish ancestry and they wanted an Irish passport. So suddenly they had six or seven times the normal amount of requests for passports. But they didn't have the ability to take in any more staff. So they said, well, okay, we could actually automate the happy part of passport renewals. So if the person's name's the same, they've had a passport before, everything's the same, no changes, you know, there's no issues with them, there is no hold on their passport, we could actually automate this and we could actually put it online and they could upload a new photo and then a robot could actually process it. It took, they went from 17 days down to 48 hours. Okay. And I remember when we first talked about that, the union in the passport office being, okay, that's going to take away the jobs of the people in the passport office. But it actually turned around the other way. They were saying, no, the people like their jobs more because they don't have people coming in and shouting and screaming at them because I applied for my passport two weeks ago and where is it? I'm going on holidays tomorrow. They were getting the passports back in 48 hours. So the staff were happier because they didn't have to deal with stressful situations. And there always is emergencies and they actually have time to spend on the emergencies of the people who come in at the last minute or their passport was stolen or there was an issue or with it. So they actually can actually work on that. Another one that automation, and I suppose I bring it back to, I suppose during COVID, I did a lot of work with nursing teams and a lot of people in the infectious control area and they were just they just couldn't handle the volumes that was coming their way and i remember one of the first places in the world to automate the reporting of covid testing was ireland and it was a it was a project in in the matter hospital that we had set up as a pilot and we set it up and we did a case study and we put it out there. And suddenly the head of PR and UiPath says to me, says, uh, would you and Jinsey, who's the director of nursing, would you, we have a couple of requests for interviews. And we thought it was going to be the Irish Times or they might want a, a note. It's CNN, it's the Wall Street Journal. It's, and I'm like, really? Like, why do they want to talk to us? Because you're solving a massive problem. And the one thing in, say, in healthcare and you automate your process, it could be automated anywhere in the world then. And I said, well, look, it's UiPath's technology, but the real person who figured this out was Jinsey Jerry, the director of nursing. I think you need to talk to her. 
you know, and says, no, no, we want to know about how UiPath were involved in solving this problem. But it fundamentally came down to say, well, they were able to save three hours each day on the reporting side of things, and it became a hell of a lot more. And then they started saying, well, why don't we automate all the infectious control reporting that we do? And then, you know, what we're going to do at that time, we're going to train people on how to stop the infectious diseases being spread in the hospitals. And I think, and the people were saying, oh, automate, automation is going to take away the job. In that case, it enabled them to do their job because it took away the reporting and enabled them to actually train with it. But look, there is no denying it in some areas in finance tasks have been automated so people aren't needed there anymore. But I bring it down fundamentally to you guys here in the room. If you understand these technologies, you'll always be employed. And, but you also have to be agile to change as you see new things happening and embrace change. Uh, the one constant I had in four years in UiPath was change is going to happen constantly. You know, and technology moves at such a pace, you need to move with it. So think about it that way, but also think about if I embrace these technologies and I understand them, there's less chance of me being automated away if I'm the person doing the automation. Thank you. You work with um, public and private sector firms. So could you talk about the differences and challenges that the public sector brings versus the private sector? Um, in private sector, they can move very, very quickly. Uh, they can make decisions. In the public world, there is procurement rules. There is a project that could get off the ground in a private company could could happen in a week in the public sector sometimes can take six months because of the procurement and the rules around it there's a lot of, they're getting a lot better and they're they're understanding innovation but they have rules and they're there for a good reason you know but sometimes they just need to be a little bit more agile and embrace things and move a bit faster but we saw that in in covid um when i was working in in o2 um, which we, uh, at the time we, this is going to sound a bit crazy, but one of the solutions we, we ran, and you're going to all look at me really strangely, was a project called Health Mail for the HSE, which was the ability for hospitals to send emails to pharmacies or to doctors. And this was 2014, I think we rolled out this project, because in 2014 they were still using fax machines. They weren't using email. It wasn't deemed, there wasn't security, there wasn't structures around it. They didn't want to share patient data. But but they were willing to send it on a fax. And the fax could be left there on the machine for anyone to pick up, but an email wasn't deemed secure enough. So we worked on a secure email solution. And the hospitals then started saying, they're gonna, we're going to email through to the hospitals. And it started to speed up a range of things. But then at the time they were saying, oh, there's all these regulatory reasons why they couldn't email a prescription to a pharmacy. COVID happened and suddenly the mother of all innovation was COVID. Suddenly they were like, okay, let's change the law. Let's allow us to email these prescriptions to the pharmacies. You know, so we are seeing the public sector start to embrace change and, you know, and move quicker. But in the private world, they're always looking to be one step ahead of their competitors. 
So you do see companies move that bit faster in the private world. And they're also very much beholden to shareholders. So they will embrace a lot of technologies, especially if they're going to make cost savings. Whereas the public sector, you're not really focused on the cost savings. You're focused on the efficiencies and you're fo focused on, you know, basically how you're making people's jobs better, but the how you're benefiting the public on the other side, just like the passport office, making things run smoother and faster. So you have mentioned that uh, automation does reduce a lot of time. So I wanted to know how you measure, like, like what is the, do you have a threshold that you use to check that a significant impact has been made in the reduction? I suppose the key part of automation is, is managing the reporting on the other side of it. So we always, we always have a, we always will look at, when we first look at automating a task, we will figure out how long it takes the human to do the task. Then we will compare it as to how quickly the robot will do the task. So we were working on a project with discharge letters for a hospital recently. And we had a young developer, a guy called Connor, who came through the School of Automation program. And he's talking to the CIO of a hospital and he was really, really nervous before. And, and I said, well, Connor, just use the facts. Okay. And I said, they're there and they're there for a reason. And so he said, okay, Mark, I'll go on to the call. I said, just tell them what you've done and show them the benefits. And so he said, okay, prior to automating the process, it used to take a nurse uh, one hour to do 12 discharge letters and attach them to the patient files and send a copy of the email to their GP. And he said, I've automated it and it now takes two minutes and 42 seconds to do the same amount of work. And the CIO turned around and said, okay, so he seems to be doing the maths. He goes, so you saved him like 57 and a half minutes. And he goes, no, I've saved him an hour because they don't actually have to do any of it. So the two minutes are actually two minutes and whatever, 40 seconds are done by the robot. So you fundamentally bring it back to that hour is back with that nurse and what is she going to do with that time or he are going to do with that time. So f the easiest way, as we will say, is each task has a time and you're doing the comparison between automating it and you're doing the capacity how long it takes. But you're also looking at what could be done. There's no point in just saying I'm, I've saved time. You also have to work with the nurse to figure out as well, what can she do with the time she has back? What benefits? Because you're not just selling on the benefit of the robot does it faster. It's if that task is taken away, what else can they do? And there's huge amounts of things that only a human can do. And what we say is, especially in healthcare, is you want somebody to have empathy. You want someone to spend time with you as a patient. So they've got that time to give back to their patients. Thank you. Um, we'll be taking some questions from the class now. Uh, my name is Kathy, and uh, I have a question. Um, have you ever faced a challenging project when automation is resisted by its stakeholders? And how would you overcome that situation? The other thing you have to remember is that sometimes automation is not the answer. Sometimes it's just a broken process. And sometimes the resistance is right because somebody above them has decided that automation is going to solve all of the problems. 
but it's actually not. It's actually just you're better off just fixing the process. So in those cases, I would always take the try to understand why they're hesitant or why there's an issue with them embracing automation. And there's generally a reason why. And sometimes the reason why is that they know the process better than their boss who has recommended that it should be automated. But, uh, but they also know where, where the process is broken. So a part of what we do as an organization is we only automate if it's suitable for automation. So a lot of times we actually recommend to the, to the organization, no, automation is not actually the right thing here. Fixing the process is the right thing to do, and here's where it's broken. So, and in and the other times, you will have scenarios where somebody thinks with the mindset of where you've you've you figured out that automation is the right thing to do, but they're very hesitant because they're like, this is taking they see it as taking their job away from them. Okay, but what you're also trying to is you're trying to figure out is well, if I gave you back this time. Is there something better you could be doing with your time? And also we do see, especially when we're working with in the public sector, we do a lot of work with unions because there was a huge amount of people that were doing huge amounts of overtime but weren't getting paid for it. We're actually allowing them to get home on time to see their kids and spend time with their families because we've taken away tasks that weren't vital to them. Because what you want to be in an environment where where you're showing them, and I always try and bring it back to, if I can show you how your job is better, will you embrace it? But I also I have to have the mindset of saying they might be right to be negative about automation because they might know better than I do that this process is just broken. It shouldn't be automated. Because if you if you automate a broken process, you're just doing a bad process faster. So you're actually creating a bigger problem because you're doing it faster. So going in with the mindset of, you know, right, try to understand their hesitancy, try to get them to expand on it, and then say, and then never turn around and go, like I've seen some consultants in the past and go, oh, automation will solve that problem. They don't listen to them. They don't understand why they're hesitant. But also at the same time, if you have done the discovery and they're still negative towards it, there are some people who just don't like change. You know, and you will come across those people in your career. But sometimes you just have to show them the long-term benefit of this change. And then there, as I said, the people who don't embrace it after you've done the full discovery, as you've built the business case after you've showed the benefits and they still don't want to embrace it, a lot of those people will be left behind because of the nature of the way the world is moving. Hi, my name is Suman, and I'm very impressed with how you've made significant career shifts, I would want to say. And I guess as a consultant, I want to understand how do you position yourself to land those roles? And especially as a consultant, you do have to have these varied expertise. So I just wanted to understand from your perspective um, how to position yourself. I suppose you're, you're always embracing change. So to end up in RPA from working in a, a mobile operator, people go, how did you end up there? Is because we were actually using the technology in our own business to make changes to our own structures. So then I was like, okay, I could see the benefit to what it was doing for us in Tree. 
I could see the time savings, the efficiencies it was doing. And it was a very strange... The world moves in very strange ways. I got a phone call one Saturday afternoon and would you be interested in going and talking to this company because they saw that I had a problem-solving mindset. You know, and sometimes you can learn you can learn how these companies work, but it's the problem-solving mindset is what they want. And they know you can get the experience in their technology. You do the training, you embrace their way of working, but it's the ability to solve the problems is what they're hiring you for, not your years of experience in the technologies. Because UiPath only started to exist in 2016, really. It had been around since 2012, but sort of got embraced in 2016, 2017, and I joined them in 2018. So there wasn't a huge amount of people out there who had that type of experience. So just being willing to embrace change, uh, having a very open mindset, and also always reference back, always tell stories. You know, when I went for the job in UiPath, I told the story of bringing in health mail. You know, but I was working for a mobile phone company. But yeah, we had other parts of the business and we evolved. Companies are always evolving and you evolve with them. But, and also, I did a lot of professional development where I did courses of my own and said, well, there's online training there. I'm going to do that. You know, if I rely back on what I did in university, which I've never worked in, which is HR and industrial relations, you know, I've constantly evolved and I've constantly looked at what's happening in, out in the world. And I've said, you know what? I'm going to go off and do that course. I'm going to do the online course. I'm going to watch... The, it's funny, YouTube is amazing. The stuff you learn on YouTube and the stuff you can embrace, you know, and the training you can take on board yourself, you know. So just embrace these things, but also bring it back to a story. They're they're not hiring you for a they're hiring you for your ability to do the job and they'll you'll embrace their culture. But they want to see are you the right fit for their culture. They can train you on their technology, but they can't train you to be a problem solver. You either have that or you don't but then have the ability to reference it back on the problems you've solved in your career over the years. I had a question. How do you assess a company's readiness for technology-centered transformation? And I mean, once you kind of assess this, what kind of tech stack do you use to actually bring about that automation and you know those general PI process improvement plans into existence? Well, I suppose quite lucky how do I assess a lot of these companies will come to us because they they want to embrace these changes themselves. Um, it's very hard to go into a company and say, I want you to embrace change when they're not ready for it. The best time is when they've started to go on the journey, you're just there to bring them on the journey with them. But I suppose understanding the processes, that all comes back to knowing the right people in the room getting the subject matter experts to talk you through the process, using the right tools to map out those processes, uh, looking for where the potential variants are in those processes. But what you are doing is to bring them on the journey with you, you have to show them what the journey looks like at the end. You know, So they need to see what the end goal is and why they're doing this, and that's where they'll embrace change. Change for change's sake is not a good thing. Change because they want to change something and they want to embrace it is based around having a goal to get to at the end. 
And your job is to bring those companies on that journey and saying, I am going to help you get there, but you need to work with me because you know how your company works better. I'm just, I'm just here to help you get there. And I'm here to show you the technologies which will help you embrace this change. But they need to buy into it 100%. You know, the companies that bring you in because they think they need to have a consultant in and they like to have the idea of having the consultant, they'll spend a lot of money and they'll get no benefit out of it. You know, if you get them to embrace it from the start, you get them to embrace the journey they're going to go on, that's your job in bringing that in. And it's funny, the question you asked about, I, I'm always referencing things I did 10 or 15 years ago with other companies, but making it relevant to them now. Yeah, it mightn't be exactly what we're doing here, but we did a similar type of project and here it was a similar goal and this is how we're going to get you there. It's always always bringing it back to a story and how you helped other companies in the past and they'll buy into that. If, and then the other thing as well, you can't always do it all on your own. Bringing the right people in at the right time, you have, a, have to have a strong team around you and then fundamentally, again, if you don't know the answer, come back to them or bring the right person with you the next time to the meeting because you don't know it all. And that's why there are other people in the organizations that work with you. Well, we'll wrap up there. Thank you for sharing your ideas with us today. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening. The music used is Voltaic Fluctuations by Ben Prunty and used with his permission. 